0: cleaning is an awful job wrong spring cleaning is an ajax job Special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. We're beginning a new four part series called Spring Cleaning, and I love those old commercials. Do you love them? I love the fact that everybody in them is smiling. Have you ever smiled when you're cleaning your refrigerator? You're like, man, life is good right now. Yeah? Oh my goodness. Well, we're talking about spring cleaning and not so much your house or your garage or your basement. I want to talk about spring cleaning your heart. Um, And to get us going this morning, I want to tell you about an unscheduled reunion that I had at a magical place called Rivertown Crossings Mall. Have you been there? (laughs) Yes. It was the dead of winter two years ago. My wife took a trip to visit some friends in Florida, thus abandoning me with the children in the dead of winter. Um, And as you know, I have four boys. Um, At the time, they were nine, seven, five, and three, And they were going to tear the house apart. And so I decided to throw them in the minivan, drive them across town, and there is a tree or was a tree at Rivertown Crossings Mall with two slides. If you've been there, you may know this. Um, I quickly realized that the design of this tree is really not great because your kids run around the tree and you can't see them all at the same time. So I found myself doing laps around the tree in order to keep dibs on my four kids. The little one with orange hair at the time liked to hide which made my life rather interesting. But one of my laps around the tree, I ran into an old friend. Uh, I hadn't seen him in like 25 years, and dude, he looked old, right? No. But w- we had not gone to school together. We had gone to church together. We were in a small group together in senior high. We'd done camps together. We'd done a few trips together. I know him really well, uh, and I, it was just great. I said, oh my goodness, how fun to see you. I introduced him to three of my kids, because again, I couldn't find Wilson. What do you do? And uh, he introduced me to his kids, And and then he said to me, well, you know, what do you do for work? And I said, oh, you know, I'm a pastor now. And instantly his face just changed. And I was trying to figure out how to read what he was feeling. And then he said, I don't go to church anymore. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I gave up on the whole God, Jesus, church thing about seven years ago. And I said, really, why? Why? And he said, you know, I just, I just started paying attention and a lot of my non-Christian friends were like better people than my Christian friends. And I, so I just decided that, you know, Jesus must not work very well. Or maybe, you know, set a form of a question. Look at that next slide. Maybe like this. Um, does Jesus really make that much difference in people's lives? And I thought to myself, you know, I think he does um, and that's one of the reasons that I love my job. I get a front row seat to the work of God in people's lives. And I said to my, you know, I've seen impossible marriage situations mended. I've seen impossible financial situations reversed. I've seen hearts that swore they would never trust again, open themselves up to trust again. I've, I've seen over and over again what Jesus can do in a life. And he looked back at me and he goes, okay, that's fair, but not everybody. I mean, not everybody who goes to church... Looks more like Jesus over time. And so, what do you do with that? And I remember thinking, that is a great question. And that is a series waiting to happen. And that is the spring cleaning series. Because it really is a great question. If you think about it, take any group of people that attend the same church, they hear the same talks, they sing the same songs, they're in the same small groups, they go on the same trips. And over time, some of them end up looking more like Jesus. The longer they have been pursuing faith, the better versions of human they become, while other people sort of stall out, and they don't grow, and they don't change. And so what do, we do? what do we do with that? And my suspicion is, for a few of us, this could be the most significant series you've ever experienced in church in your whole life, because of the things that I want to talk to you about, because when I want to argue is that the answer to the question of why some people don't grow, I think it has everything to do with our hearts. For the next four weeks, I wanna to talk to you about what it might look like to spring clean your heart. And of course, not the heart that pumps blood through your body, but that invisible, intangible place from which you live and lust and love and make decisions. It's, it's, it's the core of who you are. And it's critical for us to consider our hearts. And again, it's not something we tend to do in our culture, but it's critical. And you see it's critical right because of something Jesus said one day to his first followers. He's been with them a few years. He has his 12 guys. I imagine them up around the Sea of Galilee, maybe seated having lunch, maybe on a walk between cities. And Jesus says this to his first followers. And it's uh, recorded for us by Matthew who was there He says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. So you start to see, okay, it's bigger than just what we say, Uh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus would say all that negative stuff that ends up producing itself in our behavior in word or deed, it comes from your heart. And this explains a great mystery. Maybe you've had this. Have you ever found yourself saying something, and as the words were coming out of your mouth, you wanted to grab them and put them back? Yeah? You've had this experience? And you think to yourself, where in the world did that come from? It's like, I normally have a filter on what I say. I normally have a filter on what I do, but sometimes like stuff slips through the filter. Like, Where in the world does that come from, Jesus would say, it comes from your heart. Growing up, many of us were taught to monitor our behavior. We're taught things to say and not to say, things to do and not to do. If you have kids, you're in process with this right now. You learn what to say to get a date. You learn what to say to get a second date. You learn what to say to get a job. You learn what to say to keep a job. We learn to monitor our behavior and our words, but see, no one ever teaches us to monitor our hearts. And that's a problem if the heart operates at a deeper level than the mouth or the emotions. No one taught us how to get bad things out or good things in. And this is a big deal because Jesus tells us that everything, everything comes from our heart. Now, Jesus came to earth uh, as a part of the Jewish culture, a Jewish man, and this thinking about the heart as the, so, the source for what we do and how we live has been was a part of the Jew, Jewish tradition for generations before Jesus. In fact, a thousand years before the time of Jesus, Israel was ruled by a king named Solomon, who led the nation of Israel to unprecedented levels of prominence and prosperity on the world stage, made a fortune for himself, and in fact, the Bible notes that he was the wisest man who ever lived, which that would be a nice way to be remembered. Would you agree with me? Yeah. Solomon collected things, uh, but Solomon also collected wisdom. He believed that the most valuable thing that we could collect is wisdom. We could learn from those who have gone before us, and we could help those who would come after us. And so one of the projects that Solomon undertook as king of Israel was to assemble the wisdom of his day in a volume that made its way into the Old Testament of the Bible. It's called Proverbs. And in Proverbs, we see all sorts of wisdom on how to live, what to do, what to do when you wrong people, how to treat people who hurt you. And then Solomon says the following in Proverbs chapter 4. He says, above all else, which is stunning because there are so many things he talks about. Above all else, he says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. In other words, it's not enough just to monitor your behavior. There's something deeper. We live from our heart. And so implication, one of the greatest things we could do for ourselves and for our kids is to learn how to guard our heart. And so in this series, what we're going to do is explore four things that may need to be cleaned out of your heart, four things that can get lodged in there and do incredible damage. And to make matters more complicated, the damage is often done behind the scenes without us being aware of what's driving us. It's like a computer virus that spreads and infects everything in our lives, whether we know it or not. So the four enemies of the heart that we're going to tackle in the next few weeks, uh, today we're going to talk about guilt, next week we we'll talk about jealousy, then anger, and then greed. And just a heads up, next week we're talking about jealousy. We may or may not be opening with the Rick Springfield classic, Jessie's Girl." And I may or may not have purchased a mullet for Paul. So you want to come back for that? All right, It's it's going to be quite a weekend. So these four enemies of the heart, eventually, they grow to the point where they breach the filter that we've placed on our words or our actions. And when they do, they get us into trouble or cause us to do things that we shouldn't. They keep us from being the people that God designed for us to be. And they help explain when not everybody who attends church and pursues faith ends up looking more like Jesus. Now, the enemies of the heart can best be understood in terms of a debt-debtor relationship. Each one of these um, is a debt-debtor relationship. And if you've ever been in a situation where you've owed somebody money or someone has owed you money, you know how that causes a relational imbalance. And whenever you're with them, that's all you can think about. Uh, I remember years ago, my wife and I lived in a 1,000-square-foot Cape Cod in East Grand Rapids. And as an investment, we bought the Cape Cod right next door. So the houses were literally 10 feet apart. And we decided we would buy it and we would rent it because I knew so much about renting things, right? Uh, So I just stuck a for rent sign in the front and a young couple came and knocked at the door. And we thought, well, this is perfect. What a wonderful arrangement this would be. What I never considered, though it would be convenient to live right next door to help them with any problems with the house, it would make matters very complicated if they ever decided to stop paying rent. And so, because I was a youth pastor, I was totally flush with cash, as you can imagine as a 20-something. So uh, I remember it was a February, uh, they, a couple, young couple knocked on the door, I had a couple of kids, said they had a dog, we didn't have any rules because I'd never done this before, Uh, And we met them, and they came in, and we decided that, you know, we would rent to them, and and they moved in along with their pit bull. You cannot make this up, okay? Uh, They moved into the house, and for the first couple of weeks, it was kind of nice. You know, the neighbors were there. We would say hi to them on the way to work and on the way home, or they'd be out walking the dog, and we, you know, kind of got to know them a little bit. And then uh, the time came for that first rent check, uh, and it didn't come, And there was that day that I sort of walked over, you know, the 10 feet between the houses and knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, rent's due. And they said, oh yeah, we'll get it to you, no problem. And I said, oh, no worries, no worries, that's great. And I went back and, you know, a week went by and another week and another week and then a month and then another month. And then I'm calling a lawyer friend about what it takes to evict somebody. Every time I saw them, all I could think about was the debt-debtor relationship that I had inadvertently entered with these people. And the story uh, just there to illustrate when you owe somebody money or somebody owes you money, it causes a relational imbalance. Things get uncomfortable. And it's just like that when any one of these four things gets lodged in our hearts. So today we get to talk about the first one. We're going to talk about guilt. And we'll define guilt this way. Uh, Guilt, I have offended you and now I owe you. That's the debt-debtor relationship. I've offended you in some way, and now I owe you. I've stolen from you. I've lied about you. I've wrecked your home. I've harmed you, and now I owe you something in return. That's the inequity in the relationship. And maybe you've never thought about guilt this way, but it really is true. And we have language that illustrates this. We say to people, I owe you an apology, or I'll make it up to you, right? And what, what are we really saying there? It's like we have a debt-debtor relationship. After we acknowledge the harm done, something in us knows that there's a debt. Every time we hurt someone, there's a sense we took something from them. It's like a dad who has an affair with another woman has taken from his kids the opportunity to have a mom and dad tuck them into bed at night. They've robbed their spouse of a partner, and they've robbed their family of of some level of reputation. Whenever you wrong somebody, there's a sense in which you've taken something from them, and there's a debt-debtor relationship. Guilt is nothing more than an acknowledgement of the debt. So that's what guilt is. I I would argue that that's not how we experience it. We experience guilt as a weight that we carry around with us all the time. And the, the tension is that this weight that we carry around with us can affect relationships that have nothing to do with the original harm done. You carry the weight of guilt from mistakes you made relationally in college into your marriage. You carry the weight of guilt from something you did in your marriage into your work relationships, and it begins to spread the brokenness. As long as you carry guilt or the weight, it can impact every other relationship. And it's almost impossible to see in the mirror if you've been carrying it for a while, because it's like it's become a part of you. But, but the good news is it's not supposed to be a part of you. You weren't designed to carry it this way. I was talking to a counselor friend about guilt, and he said something that was really memorable. He said, you know, if you look behind guilt, you find anger. He says, you're angry at yourself because there's a sense in which you let yourself down you didn't meet your expectations. He said, you weren't the dad or the mom or the cousin or the aunt or the worker or the kid that you promised yourself you would be. And so you've let them down and now you're carrying the anger. It's tempting to think there's nothing we can do about the weight we carry, right? None of us have access to a time-traveling DeLorean yet, right? Right? So we can go back and, and, and undo the thing we did or do it right or do it differently, but we don't have that option. We can't change the past. We can't go back and keep our promises. So we think, I can't do anything. But here's the thing. Guilt is a heart issue. And if you let it fester, it starts to infect everything else. So it must be dealt with if we're going to thrive. Now, if guilt is a debt that you owe to somebody else, there's really only two options if you want to get serious about getting rid of it. You can repay the debt, but that's often impossible. I mean, how do you repay a collapsed marriage or a lost childhood? So so that really isn't an option for most of us. The other thing you can do is you can ask the person that you offended to cancel the debt. You can just go before them and, and, and actually ask them to let you off the hook. But the challenge with either trying to repay the debt or ask someone to forgive you is that they both require something that we're really not very good at because we don't like it, uh, confession, right? That's what it takes. But confession is powerful because, and this is our big idea for today, confession breaks the power of guilt in a way that nothing else seems to. Confession exposes the things and has power to clean out our hearts, So it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible talks a lot about guilt and confession. What does surprise a lot of people is that when the Bible talks about guilt and confession, it talks about confessing to other people and not just to God. Because we tend to think of confession as something we do between us and God. And this has to do with the religious climate in which many of us were raised. We were raised to think, I offended you, so I'm going to tell him. It's like if you grew up Catholic, you may remember going to confession where you told the priest what happened, and, and then you would leave and, and you'd feel better for a little bit, but then it would kind of come back up like it really wasn't dealt with, even though they told you it was dealt with, and in the eyes of God it's dealt with, but, but it, like it continues to rise up in you. Or if you're Protestant, you meet with like a you know a professional religious person like me, and we go to Starbucks, and you start to of say, "Here's what I did." And it's like, well, you know, Jesus forgives you, and great, and you leave going, "Boy, that was really good coffee. I'm glad we did that." And then like a week later, you're like, why do I feel this way? Again, we must need more coffee, which generally is God's will. That's true. But uh, I would argue there's something there's something else. If you want to get over guilt, you must go to the person you offended and confess. Now, it should not surprise us. We see this throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Numbers that contains the story of the nation of Israel after they left slavery in Egypt. And at one point, God says this, uh, to tell the people through Moses, their leader, Numbers verse five, 5, verse 5 and 7. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and is so unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. Implication, to the person. You're like, how do you know that? Because of what comes next. They must make full restitution for the wrong they've done and add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the person they wronged. It's like God says to these people, like he's trying to teach them how to live. And he says, all right, you wrong somebody. Don't tell me. I already know. Or you can tell me, right? But you're not going to give me any new information. What you need to do is you need to confess and you need to make it right. And you say, well, why? Because that's the right thing to do. Yes, it's the right thing to do. But it also is how you guard your heart. Jesus says something very similar to his followers one day. And when he told them this, I think it shocked them because of the way they thought about their relationship to God. Here's, here's what Jesus says. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, meaning you've done something wrong, you've traveled to the city of Jerusalem, you've brought a lamb or a ram or a goat or a grain offering or whatever you brought to give to God, to apologize for the wrong you've done, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. You've offended them. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. Time out, Jesus. You're saying that to God it's more important that I'm right with other people than right with him? I think you say, yes, because it's all connected. It's like if you say you're sorry to God, God will forgive you. He's faithful to forgive you. But if you wanna thrive in this life here and now, you've got to guard your heart. You've got to understand. Your heavenly father wants more for you than simply bringing a gift to him to apologize to him. He wants you to experience life now. And to that, you go to the person you offended and be reconciled to them. But Jesus, you're saying that's more important than making things right with God. Jesus would say, yeah, because that's the way you enter the life that God has for you. One more passage, Uh, Jesus has a brother named James. He instructs early Christians this way. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. In other words, um, there's something wrong on the inside. You need to be healed. And one of the ways you get things right on the inside is to go to people on the outside you've stolen from or who you've done wrong to. And that's how, you, that's how you find freedom. That's how you find healing. That's how you guard your heart. Now, there's a common misconception with regards to confession. A lot of people think can, the goal of confession is a clear conscience. But it's deeper than that. The goal of confession is a clean heart. And to do the clean heart thing, you really have to confess not just to God, but to people. Here's why. The sins that you confess only to God are easier to repeat, aren't they? Right? Maybe some of you, maybe it's just me. Okay. The sins you confess only to God are easier to repeat. Let me, let me put it in a story form and kind of understand it, unpack it a bit. Imagine with me, a ninth grade girl, she goes to youth group, she goes to church She does mission trips. She has a sense of the way that God wants her to live. But one day she gets to her freshman math class and realizes with horror that there is a test and she has forgotten to study. And math is not her strongest subject. And so what she quickly does is she makes herself a cheat sheet, which she slides up inside her sleeve. Now, in this moment, she knows that cheating is wrong. She is categorically against cheating. However, though she's against cheating, she's for A's. And so when the test is passed out, she pulls out the cheat sheet, she aces the test, but then walking out of the class, she has this knot in her stomach because she knows what she did is wrong. She feels guilt. And so she goes home and she gets on her knees in her bedroom and she prays and she says, you know, God, I'm so sorry. And would you forgive me? Uh, And I, I want the blood of Jesus to cover this sin. And of course the blood of Jesus covers this sin. That's what grace is. And yet, she walks away feeling better, but then two weeks later, she's back in school, same class. Once again, there's a test. Once again, she isn't prepared like she wanted to be prepared. Once again, the piece of paper, the cheat sheet slides up inside her sleeve. In fact, it's easier the second time. And she's still against cheating, and she's still for A's, and so she does that thing that she does, and and then she goes home again. She gets on her knees again. You're starting to wonder if the carpet's going to wear out in that one spot in her bedroom, right? Right. And she says she's sorry again, and the blood of Jesus covers her sins again. But it's like, but it's like she's just going to repeat that sin. Different scenario. The first time she does it, the first time she cheats, she comes home. She prays. She has this sense. I didn't just wrong God. I actually wronged my teacher. And so she writes a letter to the teacher. And she just says, hey, I, I have a strong sense this is wrong, and I just want to confess this to you. And I understand there's consequences but I need to be free. I don't want to do this again. And so the teacher gets the note, and there are consequences, and maybe they're severe. But here's the thing. What are the odds that she will cheat again post-consequence, right? It's like she has consequences, but then at the other side of the consequences, because they will end, she has a clean heart. See, you change when you confess to the person you offended. And in the New Testament, what you find is God is way more concerned about your heart than about consequences. He wants our heart to be pure because we live from our heart. If we're carrying a weight, he wants us to dump it. And the only way to really get after that is to confess to the person you offended. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and it's totally fair. You're like, totally get the ninth grade analogy. If I had a ninth grade daughter and she did that, we'd have consequences. Got it, right? Um, So I understand the principle, but but my life is a little more complicated than that. I'm not in ninth grade anymore, and I didn't cheat on a math test. I, I cheated on my spouse, and, and you're saying, I mean, if I go and tell my husband or my wife that that I did that, they, that is going to hurt them. Here, here's the thing that you find: it's like it isn't the confession that hurts them; it's the sin that hurts them. And in fact, in working with people over the years, so often the spouse already knows something is wrong. They're already aware almost every time that something is wrong. And the reason we don't confess is that we're afraid of the consequences, but what we don't realize and we don't weigh is that concealment also carries consequences. And if the consequences of confession are immediate and severe and temporary, the consequences of concealment, I mean, they can change everything And they can drag out over a lifetime. And and so if you were your heavenly father and you loved you and you were for you and you forgive you, what would you tell you to do? You say you're scared of confession. You know what? That's already, that's one of the consequences of that sin. But listen, on the other side of that confession, there is freedom And there is a capacity to love and serve and allow other people to be imperfect in your presence because they don't reflect back on your own imperfection. So if you were God, if you were your heavenly father and you loved you, what would you say? You'd say, confess, get free, stop carrying the guilt. I mean, it's so simple and yet it's beyond complicated emotionally. And that's why so many never never take that step. But if something... In this resonated with you, I just want to give you three quick things to consider doing as you think about spring cleaning your heart. Uh, And and the first is pretty simple it's just you need to tell somebody what you did that led to the guilt. Somebody you trust who can listen to you, who can encourage you, who can remind you that there's life on the other side of the guilt. And in fact, there is a better life on the other side of the guilt. That's step one tell somebody. Number two, you need to tell the person you offended. And for some, that's a letter uh, because the face-to-face thing, you'll never do it and say, okay, but I need to let them know and I need to invite them into a conversation. And if they get the letter and they understand and they agree to meet, that's going to be like awkward. It's going to be hard. You're going to get palm sweat and lower back sweat both at the same time, right? Because you're not going to want to. But listen, if you do it, you will never regret it. Because once you get past those immediate consequences, you start to realize that you're free. You're free to become the person that God created you to be. So in closing, just a few questions to consider. We'll put them up on the screen. How are things in your heart? How are things in your heart as the weather starts to turn warmer? How's your heart? And do you have any secrets? Are you carrying a weight right now? And you wandered in here and just... And and if that's you, um, understand that this, this content can really be a game changer. And so I would just encourage you to lean into this and not run from it. Even though it's scary, it has the power to transform your life because it has the power to transform your heart. And everything flows from your heart. Would you stand? I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, in moments like this, um, I realize why you taught us to address you as Heavenly Father. Fathers love their kids, fathers want the best for their kids. And sometimes fathers have to encourage their kids to do difficult things because on the other side of the difficult things, there is a better life. And so for anyone this morning that, um, that something rose immediately when we started talking about guilt, like it didn't take a lot of thought, I pray for courage. I pray for resolve. I pray for strength. I pray that as they take those steps to maybe tell someone and then maybe tell the person they offended, that they would sense that you are with them and that you are for them, and you love them more than they can possibly imagine. We thank you that you love us in spite of our failures. We thank you that we can know where we stand with you, not because we are good, but because you are good. And so we bless you, we celebrate you, we thank you, we love you, and we ask for your help. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.